Before we investigate further, there's one very important notch on the timeline of the Johnny Gosh case that we need to talk about. That is the pictures that showed up on an envelope on Noreen Gosh's doorstep in 2006. As the story goes, on Noreen's birthday that year, she went out to her front door and she saw a plain manila envelope sitting on the stoop. When she opened it up, there were pictures inside. There was a picture of a young boy resembling Johnny at the time that he was taken, lying on a bed sort of curled into a fetal position. He's shirtless, he's gagged, his wrists are bound behind him, and his feet are bound. There's another picture of three boys lying on a bed, each bound and gagged. There's also a picture of a man. There's nothing really telling about this picture. It's an old black and white picture of a man's face in profile. His eyes are closed, his head is tilted down. He's wearing a white t-shirt and he appears to be standing next to a wall or a tapestry of some kind with a very loud pattern on it. There was no note, no explanation included with the pictures. Noreen has always said when she first saw the pictures, she couldn't breathe. Now, obviously there's a slew of questions regarding these pictures, not just the who it is or the how or the why, but the why now. This was 2006 when these pictures suddenly appeared on Noreen's doorstep, just about 24 years since the day Johnny disappeared. Those are the questions that we're going to explore today. And before I get started, I have to say thank you to everyone who's been listening and reaching out to me over the past few weeks. I've been receiving a number of emails providing me with links, telling me personal stories. I'm going through each one, trying to get back to each one of you as promptly as I can. Some of the perspectives that I've read through have been so astonishing, uncovering layers that I didn't even know existed. So I ask you to please keep that coming. If you know something, say something. I always give out our contact info at the end of each episode. There is no law of nature that says Johnny Gosh's case has to remain forever a cold case. If we keep finding new information, maybe we can eventually bring it to a close. So with that said, Today we are going to talk about the pictures, allegedly of Johnny, that surfaced decades after his disappearance. What were they used for? And who could have left them and why? I want to remind listeners that today's episode may be disturbing and potentially triggering. This is episode 12 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. First, 2006, Noreen Gosh went out her front door and at her feet there was an unmarked plain manila envelope. Her first thought was that somebody left her something for her birthday. When she opened the envelope, she found that this was not the case. The first picture is of three boys. They're lying next to each other on a bed. The photographer is positioned at the foot of the bed. All three of them have their hands bound behind them, their feet are bound, and all three are gagged. The next picture is of a young boy lying curled up on his side on a bed, bound and gagged. In this instance, the photographer seems to be standing over the boy. Noreen has said that there's no doubt in her mind that this boy is Johnny. 
There's also a black and white picture of a man in profile. Now, it is possible that the man was dead when this picture was taken, because his eyes are closed, his head is tilted down, and he appears to have something around his neck, almost as if he was hanging. Noreen created a website, johnnygosh.com, and shared the pictures on there. It is still an active website. You can still see them there today. As far as websites go, it's pretty rudimentary. The layout and the design look like something you would see in 2006, or even long before that. The picture of the one boy by himself has something unique about it. If you look at the picture on johnnygosh.com, you'll notice a very faint marking on the boy's upper arm. The website points this out as being the brand, the rocking X, that all the boys who were kept at that house in Colorado had burned onto them. But... There's a big problem with that. If you find that picture on other websites about Johnny Gosh, you'll find a much clearer color version of the picture. And in those cases, the brand is not there. So that would suggest that the brand was added to the picture afterwards. One would have to assume as an attempt to link the picture specifically to the pedophilia ring that operated out of that house. And that's a problem because that's how misinformation starts and how credibility becomes questionable. The picture of the three boys on the bed is also up on johnnygosh.com. On the website, Noreen states that the boy on the far right is her son Johnny. She also states that the boy in the middle is David Leonard Johnson, who was born on May 2nd, 1972, and was abducted on April 1st, 1985, out of Linwood, Washington. She says that she made contact with Patricia Johnson Holm, David's mother, who confirms that that is David in the picture. As for the boy on the left, there's no name posted, but it says that he went missing out of Seattle, Washington. Now, there's a lot of problems with this explanation, and I'm going to start with the most pressing one. According to Wikipedia, on September 13th, 2006, almost two weeks after Noreen received these pictures, an anonymous letter was sent to the Des Moines police, which read, quote, Gentlemen, someone has played a reprehensible joke on a grieving mother. The photo in question is not one of her son, but of three boys in Tampa, Florida, around 1979 or 1980, challenging each other to an escape contest. There was an investigation concerning that picture made by the Hillsborough County, Florida Sheriff's Office. No charges were filed and no wrongdoing was established. The lead detective on the case was named Zalva. This allegation should be easy enough to check out, end quote. Nelson Zalva had worked for the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office in Florida, and when he was contacted by the Des Moines police, he was able to confirm that those details were accurate. Zalva said, quote, I interviewed the kids, and they said there was no coercion or touching. I could never prove a crime, end quote. Noreen still remains that Johnny is one of the boys in that picture. But basically, what you have here, as far as I can see, is that a creepy relative or neighbor gave these three boys from Tampa the idea to have this escape contest. Tied each of them up, because it was done by somebody, and then photographed them as they were having this contest. So that's the biggest discrepancy with the claim that Johnny Gosh or David Leonard Johnson are two of the boys in the photo. Another problem is with the dates. David Leonard Johnson went missing on April 1st, 1985, when he was 13. Johnny Gosh, as you know, went missing on September 5th, 1982, when he was 12. And according to some information I've read, Johnny was 5 foot 7, so he was already tall for his age, and presumably he would have gotten taller by at least 1985, for David Leonard Johnson to be in the picture too. 
The boys in this picture look younger and smaller, like none of them could be older than 10, maybe 11. And the last problem is with the picture itself. I may not have been around in the 70s, but I've certainly seen enough fashion from that time and enough physical photographs from then to know what a picture from the 1970s looks like. The boys each have, I want to call it kind of a shaggy haircut, which was popular in the 70s. Their clothes look like they were made in that time. And the actual photo has a reddish sort of tint to it, that aged type of filter that you would only see in a photo from that decade, but not beyond that. Here's a clip from the documentary Who Took Johnny, in which Noreen speaks about the pictures that were left for her that day. I could not get my breath. And I thought I was going to pass out at seeing my son like that. And if you look closely at this one, over in this area, there's dark pigmentation. It is not a shadow. That is the birthmark that Johnny had. It was always up in that area of his chest. Those photographs are my son. And, you know, it matters not to me if people think it isn't Johnny. We know that it is. And the West Des Moines police are mistaken. When I spoke to director David Bielinson, I asked him his take on the pictures, too. In 2006, when that envelope of pictures showed up at Noreen's door, does she have any idea who left her those pictures? Um, I think she has different ideas. I think she has different ideas on who that person could be. You know, that's, that's another point of contention. You know, there are people who say there's no way the pictures are not Johnny. Um, some of them Noreen says are him. There were some of the pictures that were supposedly investigated as part of another case that a detective claims were, were kids goofing around and, you know, some uncle, creepy uncle taking pictures of them. And, but, but that only represents some of the pictures. It's an entire treasure trove of pictures. Yeah. And what's interesting about the pictures is it, it's child pornography, those pictures. Yeah. So, so the only kind of child pornography that you could classify as child pornography, but, you know, you, we obviously wouldn't get arrested for showing it. Um, on, on television, but that's potentially the category that falls under. Yeah. So, and, and in those pictures, the kids are either being paid with candy or or toys or money to take these pictures for someone who, a family member, relatives, you know, cousin, someone who knows them, who they feel comfortable with knowing that they can goof around and do this. Or, mm-hmm. in some instances, the kids are clearly under duress. In yeah. Some capacity, they're being forced to do it or not, that they're just not good enough actors to show some of the faces that they're making in some of those pictures. Right. So, again, if it's Johnny or if it's not Johnny, it's depicting a world and a problem that we have with child pornography. As I scroll through johnnygosh.com, I see that there are more pictures collected from over the years. They're all of young boys, bound, gagged, sometimes in different positions, often shirtless, often gazing helplessly into the camera. Now, I don't know if these pictures were sent to Noreen or if these are just pictures that she found through her own research. I also can't necessarily say with any kind of certainty if any of these boys are Johnny. Here's a clip of Johnny's dad, John Sr., in Who Took Johnny, who, after looking at the pictures, does not believe that any of these boys are his son. First of all, there's no birthmark on his chest, and the the picture does not even look like him. His feet were much larger than that even when he was kidnapped. So his, your feet, even if you've lost a lot of weight, still stays, stays the same length. So. However, there is one picture here that I'm on the fence with. There's a picture of a boy. 
He's not in bondage or anything like that. It's a picture of his face. It's not a great picture. His eyes are very dark, half closed, and he appears to be almost grinning. But it does look like a picture taken in the 1980s. His hair looks very similar to Johnny's. From what I can tell, it looks like he has the same teeth with a similar gap between the two front incisors that Johnny had. He's visibly thinner than Johnny, but that might make sense if this was taken a few years after he was abducted. But I don't know. That's the question. If this boy isn't Johnny, then who is he? And the same question goes for all the other pictures. Even if none of them are Johnny, somebody still put these boys onto beds, tied them up, and photographed them. But I will say that the discovery of these pictures led to a new interest in Johnny's case. So in my next segment, we're going to talk about the new vested interest in Johnny Gosh that came about almost 25 years after he disappeared. That's up next. After Noreen discovered an envelope containing photos of young boys bound and gagged, which was left on her doorstep in September of 2006, it was considered to be new evidence in the Johnny Gosh case, and it reignited an interest in the case that hadn't been seen in years. Here's a report from Action 3 News in Omaha, Nebraska. Breaking news. First morning weather. Action 3 News. Live at 10. Starts now. It was the biggest break in the Johnny Gosh kidnapping case since his abduction from a West Des Moines neighborhood in 1982. Good evening, everybody. I'm Greg Peterson. And I'm Deborah Ward. Two pictures left in his mother's front door show a boy she believes to be her missing son. But a third picture, one Noreen Gosh says, came in the same envelope could be even more important. It's exclusive information you'll only see here. Action producer for Dave Ravis is live. September 5th, 1982. Johnny Gosh was delivering newspapers in his West Des Moines neighborhood, kind of like this one, when someone allegedly kidnapped him. Now investigators believe this man holds the clues to his disappearance. Nobody knows who he is, but his photograph was left on Johnny's mother's front step, along with two other photos that she believes to be her missing son. I looked at that picture and I could hardly breathe. I could hardly get my breath. It upset me that much. The pictures, Noreen Gosh says, are of her missing son, Johnny. The whole thing is just like a nightmare. I mean, nobody ever expects anything like this in their lifetime. Well, in particular in this case, this is the biggest break I ever got. Working the case as a private detective, former New York City policeman James Rothstein believes Johnny Gosh was kidnapped by a child prostitution ring. This proves what we've been working on for the last two years was factual. See, these pictures are what are known as trophy photos. They take these pictures so that they can show, and the brand, so they can show it was their kid. Trophy photos of a boy they believe to be Johnny. They're similar to pictures Rothstein discovered during other kidnapping investigations. There have been other cases where we have seen photos of kids 
when they're first abducted. What's your instinct on this? The pictures are real. The pictures are real. That is my son. We spoke with Noreen in West Des Moines at the site of Johnny's kidnapping. I looked at how tightly, how tight they've got that gag pulled. She calls the photos the biggest break since Johnny's abduction in 1982. This proves what I've been saying all along, that Johnny was taken by somebody organized. This photo in particular raises the most questions. Noreen says it came with two photos of Johnny. Rostein believes he's the key to the 24-year-old missing child case. Could he be a link to Johnny? Definitely. That's the information we have. Information Rothstein says comes from someone with connections to the child prostitution ring he believes kidnapped Johnny. It's the same person who Rothstein thinks helped Noreen get the photos. The information I'm getting that he's one of the hooks, one of the people who's responsible for this. The grainy picture quality makes it hard to determine the man's identity, so Rothstein plans to rely on his contacts. I do have somebody right now that's going to be approaching uh, a guy in this uh, underground to see if we can get ID on him. There is renewed interest here where there has not been any for a long, long time. Does that give you hope? Well, I hope to God they're going to do something. It's time. It's time. West Des Moines police have sent the photos off to labs to be analyzed. Meanwhile, Noreen hopes to solve this case soon, hoping the same person who gave her these photos provides more insight surrounding her son, Johnny's fate. I think that this is the tip of the iceberg. I think there's probably more to come. I just don't know what it will be or how it will come to me. In the three years that I've been covering this cold case, this has been the hottest lead. Now, Rothstein believes that someone risked their life to bring these pictures into the limelight. Reporting live, Dave Roberts, Action 3 News. People were suddenly talking about Johnny again. The case didn't seem dead in the water anymore. Suddenly, after years of no new information, it looked as though there might be some kind of a break in the case. But there's a problem that you have to be wary of anytime there's that level of breaking news. And that is the risk of networks who attempt to sensationalize the story and keep retelling and retelling the same information over and over to stretch the story out for longer. Here's a report from HLN that aired in 2011, five years after the pictures first surfaced. Every day, 2,300 people go missing in America. They disappear, they vanish. Their families are left waiting and hoping, but never forgetting, and neither have we. 50 people, 50 days, 50 nights, we go live spotlighting America's missing. Girls and boys, mothers and fathers, and grandparents, they're gone. But where? Tonight, September 1982, a 12-year-old paper boy, Johnny Gosh, wakes up early to deliver Sunday morning papers. His route in Des Moines, Iowa. He never comes home. His wagon is found just two blocks from his home. It's still filled with the morning papers. Now, over two decades later, his mother firmly believes photos of her son, Johnny, mysteriously appear at her doorstep. Tonight, who took 12-year-old paper boy, Johnny Gosh? I want to go straight out to Brad Ehrlich. He is a reporter for WHO Radio, joining us tonight from Des Moines, Iowa. Take us back to those early morning hours in September 5th, 1982. 
It was uh, pre-dawn that Sunday morning as Johnny Gosh woke up, as you usually did on Sunday mornings, to go pick up the paper just a couple blocks away where the Des Moines Register had a large drop-off for all the paper boys in the neighborhood to pick up their newspapers and deliver them. So a little bit before 6, 12-year-old Johnny, who, by the way, is taller than most people in his class and looks just a little bit older, goes out to go pick up his papers. Paper boys at the scene do see him there go and pick up the papers. But after that, things do get just a bit sketchy. What happens next is he continues to, uh, what happens is, is a blue car, what some one witness says is a Ford Fairmont, two-tone, blue or black, pulls up to ask directions from Johnny. From that point, the car whips around, talks to an adult to finish off the directions, and supposedly leaves the scene. And that is where the trail goes cold. It picks up just a little bit later when the phone starts ringing off the, ho off the hook at uh, John and Noreen Gosh's home because people in the neighborhood in West Des Moines, a quiet suburb just west of downtown, are wondering where their Sunday paper is. So John picks up his shoes, gets the dog, heads out, and just five blocks away, finds a radio flyer wagon filled with the newspapers and Johnny Gosh nowhere to be seen. And that was the beginning. Nutrition, Lance, take us back out to that street corner where that wagon was and that 12-year-old boy. How far away was it from Johnny Gosh's home? Well, it was just five blocks away, according to police. And there were two brothers who were there who witnessed Johnny speaking to this man in the car. Johnny then came back and spoke to the adult carrier who was also there to deliver papers. And the car came back around and also spoke to this adult, asking for those directions again. Now, when these two brothers had walked away, they came back 10 minutes later. Johnny wasn't there, but the wagon was still there. Now, another thing, there was a neighbor who was inside their house that morning. They were in the bed. And they say that they heard a loud muffler from a car, allegedly from the same car, the two-tone car that was just previously described. He looked out the window. He saw a man in the car, but there was no Johnny who was inside that car. Police do not know if this car was connected to the disappearance of Johnny, but it is one of the things that has been going along with this case as suspicious. You know, everybody, this is an amazing case. It's Johnny Gosh. It's from 1982. A little paper boy, 12 years old, went out every morning to deliver papers, but this morning he never came home. You're not going to believe some of the things that have happened since 1982, allegedly. At the risk of sounding critical, it does seem to me that the main anchor of this program, Jean Cazares, has a tone that is a bit overdramatic, and to me, that translates to kind of disingenuous. There's also a few details in there that the reporters either got wrong or left out, such as the car being either blue or black. Well, yes, it was reported by many to be two-toned, but the word was always that it was either blue or white. The first reporter also breezes over the fact that after the Goshes started receiving calls from neighbors asking where their Sunday papers were, Johnny's father hung up the phone, got the dog, as the reporter says, and goes out to find Johnny. Well, I don't know why he chose to leave out that the dog was with Johnny when he left the house that morning, and then after Johnny was taken, the dog found her own way home. You also heard the second reporter say that Johnny's wagon was found five blocks away from the Gosh home. And that's not accurate either. Because as I speak to you, I'm looking at a bird's eye map of the neighborhood right now. And I've also watched the bird's eye view of the events of that morning as they're laid out in Who Took Johnny. And this is clearly only about one block. Because what Johnny did when he left the house was he cut through the backyard of the house, which is in a cul-de-sac, walked up to Ashworth Road where he was first approached by the Blue Ford Fairmont. He continued down Ashworth to the corner of 42nd Street to collect his papers. Then he went down 42nd Street where a man came out from between two houses to follow him. 
and then he turned onto Marcourt Lane, where he was approached by the car again before it took off with him. But with these little discrepancies aside, this would spark a renewed concern for the whole industry of sex trafficking, that not only does it exist, but that it is in fact a billion-dollar industry. And with the pictures that were left on Noreen's doorstep in 2006, and more similar pictures surfacing of these young boys partially clothed, tied up on beds, you have very clear evidence that pedophilia and this exploitation of children is a very real, very widespread thing. And suddenly, the claim that Johnny was kidnapped for the purpose of being sold into a pedophilia ring didn't seem so unheard of anymore. However, there always has been and always will be skeptics. There are investigators, journalists, researchers well-versed in this type of activity who will still stand by their belief that it does make much more sense that, despite the reason for the kidnapping, that Johnny had to have been killed at the time that he was taken. Here's another clip from that same program, a back and forth on the issue of sex trafficking and the possibility that Johnny could have survived for that long and was able to show up at his mother's door in 1997. To Mark Class, president of Class Kids Foundation, joining us from San Francisco. How prevalent is something like this, being sold into this type of an industry, but yet surviving these many years? We have learned in recent years the enormity of the sex trade, um, of the human sex trafficking industry in the United States. It is estimated, Gene, that between 200 and 300,000 of our own children on any given year are victims of human sex trafficking. Now, this was an entirely different time, however. Uh, the internet has provided sex traders and pornographers with a, a much greater ability to reach out and network with each other. So they were much more isolated at that time, probably much more careful and much more behind the scenes. But I I would not never discount the theories that have been presented thus far. They sound entirely plausible to me. To C.W. Jensen, retired Portland police captain, what are your thoughts on that if this young man did appear at his mother's doorstep saying, I am alive, here's my birthmark, I want you to see it, but you can't tell anybody because I could be harmed if you do. Uh, to not go to law enforcement with that in, in any capacity uh, until she testified was when it came out. Uh, does that have a ring of truth or distruth to you? I, I have to say that, that I disagree with the detective and Mark Class. I mean, this just seems like probably a horrible, horrible tragedy that this young man was killed, was murdered back at the time, and all of these things that have happened over the last 25 years just don't seem to ring true to me. So what do we have now that we didn't have in 1982, besides the internet and the technology that we have today? Awareness. We are more informed than we ever were before on this underworld that exists in every city, every country, really. But back in 1982, when human trafficking and pedophile weren't even words that you would find in our lexicon, it would be a hard, hard sell to convince anyone that Johnny Gosh was sold into a ring of pedophiles. And I think it was the pictures that played a major role in sparking that awareness. We still don't know who exactly left those pictures for Noreen to find or what exactly their reasons were. But I am reminded of the talk that I had with Joan Dillon that I shared with you in episode 11. 
even if it wasn't Johnny in the pictures, maybe they were left by someone who was a victim of abuse themselves. And giving them to Noreen meant an opportunity to put the issue into a national spotlight. There are many layers to this that have not yet been uncovered. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I've had a lot of listeners coming forward to me, telling me pieces of information that I never knew about, and I'm quite certain that the general public has never known about them either. It's mind-blowing to me. And I really am beginning to feel that if we keep coming together with our knowledge like this, we may stand a chance to start to put a crack in this case. So in my next episode... I'm going to share with you a perspective that could potentially take this podcast into an entirely new direction. It's a first-hand account from a man who was a paperboy for the Des Moines Register in 1982. Until then, I encourage you to get in touch with me. You can always email me at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet me at Sarah E. Dimio. Faded Out is on Facebook. The URL is facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 12. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. <laughs>